Hello everyone, welcome back to Haunted Picture Palace, uh, which is exciting isn't it? So I've pitched my voice up a little bit to convey excitement. I am Ben and this is Amelia, we are the hosts of Haunted Picture Palace. Yes, but imagine if I hadn't responded and people just thought you were alone in a room introducing a like separate entity to yourself and then you did a, a voice oh, like a girl. I'm yeah. Amelia. Yeah, no, it's not happening though, is it Gov? Wow, Gov, Gov. Amelia, pick a name. <laughs> Gov, welcome Amelia. everybody, I'll stop being a cow. <laughs> Thank you for joining us again. Tonight we are talking about The Phantom of the Opera, the 1920s film. So I'm nominally calling it 1929, which yeah. is true, but the ver- there are plenty of versions that exist. They're all you know, basically the same, but mm. fundamentally the 1929 version no longer exists as it was seen in the cinema. Mm-hmm. We are watching a silent recreation of a very early talkie, of which, which there have been many, many versions of and restorations of over the years and it fell out of copyright in 1959 so there are a great many prints in circulation and on youtube and stuff we watched the most recent photoplay restoration overseen by kevin brownlow which is on the bfi blu-ray and dvd there are other versions available that are very similar i imagine Mm. did what i say I think Did so. Did that yeah. make sense? Good, because there are versions of this. Well, yeah, available. You, I hope you spoke about it because I think I heard you speak about it that there is a version later that has music that came with Talkie. Yes, yeah, but that doesn't exist anymore. No, exactly, yeah. fine. And then it was remade in the 40s with Claude Rains in it. And of course, pro- probably most famously, it was adapted for the stage by Andrew Lloyd Webber yes. in the 70s. I yes. didn't bother to look up exactly when that was. Me neither. He's a toad man. Yeah, and then they made a film of that. So it's none of it's none of those. No, none of those. It it's is better. the Lon Chaney version from the twenties, and we are delighted to have you with us here. <laughs> Shall we crack on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Beautiful sweeping score to open by Carl Davis. Oh, um, yes. Music throughout. Very, very lovely. It's nearly romantic. If you've ever seen La Bella La Bette, it's got very, very strong vibes of that, of this kind of weirdly romantic hero, nostalgic for proper classical. I know we're in the 20s, but it's pre all that. The music predates it quite heavily, even though when was the music added? 1996. Exactly, I it's think, very nicely done. Like it sort of puts it in an out of time state even more than silent film normally does. You know, I find silent film transcends time a little bit in a weird way because we've communicated through images for such a long time and through moving images actually in shadow puppetry and zoetropes and all these lovely inventions. Even the movement of hands or the movement of puppets and it's sure. it sort of adds to the mystique of a film like that to put 90s classical sort of semi-contemporary in there but then to do it in the style of something older than the film really works yeah and it did strike me because we opened the film in the paris opera house yes uh, phantom of the opera paris opera and there's something peculiar and it takes a certain sort of type of chutzpah to make a silent film which it was originally in mm. 1925 and set it in an opera house which is famously a, a very place. loud mm. talking singing music place yes i would say as well that from this opening scene baz lerman has seen this more than once ah. <laughs> uh, it, it appears again and again and i think because it's set in france and it's set in a certain time period just just before 
this film was filmed mm-hmm. and the fact that there exists very strange footage of the Moulin Rouge and has oh, of course very similar things in, it has a lot of operatic and theater based prop design in there so i would imagine this was part of a kind of visual mood board to or a certainly a moving mood board to mm-hmm. um, aid some of that design work from him yeah, I can see that, of course. Mm. Based on the Gaston LaRue novel, Phantom of the Opera, first published in 1910 mm. in book form, or 15 or 19 years before the film was made, making it roughly contemporary, which is crazy. Really strange. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Really strange thought. Uh, <laughs> and we're straight in, plot-wise, because so we open on a big operatic performance. I should say as well, it's tinted gold. Oh, Yes. We go Tinted Gold Opera House and then we move to Rose while we're watching, which must have just been mind-blowing at that time. So it really does, it changes filters, the whole thing changes uh, colour. And something quite eerie about the camera being far away from the action in 1929. If listeners to this watched Phantom Carriage off the back of our episode, go and check it out if if you didn't, because it's wonderful. So much of that is close action you know we were using the opportunity here that you know the fact that we weren't on stage any longer means that we could focus on these little details and focus on people close up and really enjoy that as a tool enjoy that as part of this Mm. new art form but we immediately are pushed back into a theatre production because one it's a phantom that exists in a theatre so you're trying to promote that theatrical (laughs) vibe and two it's unsettling because we are watching it essentially from the perspective of the Phantom himself and it immediately puts you in an uncomfortable position and is way pre Busby Barclay? Yeah. Is yeah. that his name? Busby Barclay? Yes, the, who did, in case listeners are unaware, the choreographer and... Yes, um, genius. Yeah, of the 30s musicals, which, yeah, still a decade away at this point when they're making this or you know it's wild a good few years anyway it's partly this is because it's universal universal pictures universal studios making this and they have a great deal of resources to chuck at it so they can build an enormous opera house set yes it's not a real opera house it's it's all it's all set uh, soundstage 28 and and they can show it off, and this is what the opening sequence is doing. It's yes. like putting all of the money on the screen a bit. Yes, yeah. yes. Again, I've put that Baz Luhrmann is a fan here because we meet a group of people constructing a deal while the opera goes on, and all of those people could have been painted in 1909 <laughs> yeah. without fail. They are perfectly costumed. And I had a think about this, and I realised that, of course, they are because you are using theatrical costuming from 1909 because at that point it's only 20 years old it's just us using clothes from the 90s yeah (laughs) which is shocking although the 90s is 20 years old i was gonna say that makes no sense yeah yeah (laughs) but yeah we meet a couple of old duffers who have just bought the opera house is that right yes they are dealing in yes they're doing a deal to buy it which is lovely Mm -hmm. and then immediately the sale is complete the prior owners say Oh, by the way, it's it's haunted. Yeah, and then they basically run out of the room. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, <laughs> Enjoy your haunted opera yeah, house. Bye. Exactly. Exactly. 
I wondered if they were doing a pagan ritual because, of course, I did. They're doing a rather May Day display on the on the stage while this oh, is yes. happening. It's quite an interesting little exchange going on of some sort of May Queen bringing in of the, the bows. I haven't actually read Phantom of the Opera myself, but I wondered if it was related to something. It might be. I, I have read the book, but it was some time ago. I didn't reread it in preparation for this. Slap on the wrist. Naughty me. But... <laughs> They're, the opera they're performing is Faust, the oh, you know, yes. adaptation of the Goethe tale, which I, I don't know the opera, but I do know the source material for that. Mm-hmm. And I can't, couldn't think of anything that, uh, <laughs> that was in any way related. Ballet and opera often melded in this way. They are clearly ballet dancers. They are, yeah. I, it could be... A bit of artistic license on oh, the part of the it's filmmakers. Oh, because a silent film. Because it's a silent film. That's so obvious, isn't it? It's a silent film, so of course you would use it to represent yeah, an art bit, form that exists in a theatre. Have a bit of movement on the stage as well. Yes, um, that's funny. Yeah, 1929 is still very early in the sound film lifespan or whatever. Yes. It's, you know, it's, one of, it's, it's, it's just the very, very beginning of... Of the of the talkie, and so this is how they were able to reuse the 1925 film because a lot of this footage is from 1925 yes. from the silent uh, issue of this. And my understanding, although it no longer exists properly, mm. that they refilmed some sections with talking in, but a fair amount of it was still silent even then. But what wasn't silent, if you like, what was on the soundtrack was the opera and the singing. And the action happening on stage was given like a proper soundtrack, if that makes sense. Mm. Which is one of the reasons why they chose this. There's a few other things that we'll come to as we get to them. That was one of the innovations, if you'd like, for, for the making of it. The lovely casting of an elderly maid. Yeah. Just saying. Very well done. Just pops up. And again, that's a trope, isn't it, from 20s, 30s, 40s cinema, definitely, where we have a very specific maid. Yeah, and I believe people were famous as character actors for popping up in everything, being that maid. I was going to say there was one in the Universal horror films. Yeah, a lot of the time in Universal pictures of the thirties, it's Una O'Connor. She's not in this one. Mm. I have double checked, but perhaps, and we'll come back to this. Perhaps there, there are a fair few elements in this which are in some ways laying the groundwork for the 1930s horror pictures yes. like Dracula that we've covered. Yes. Frankenstein, the Invisible Man that we haven't yet, but no doubt eventually we'll get round to. Yes, that's mm. true. Lovely, lovely phantom silhouette. Oh, yes, the occupant of box five. Yes, the occupant of box five, which has been troped and, and used to high heaven, I was going to swear, but to uh, <laughs> high heaven since. And this will be the trailblazer because nothing had happened before it like yeah. that. So obviously <laughs> this is the first one. The composer, something I really love, Davis, the composer, has timed his music with the conductor that's on stage, which oh, is so nice. lovely. Yeah, really yeah. beautiful and put it in, in exactly the same tempo. I also wonder if you're a very highly trained musician, can you look at, it might be too hardcore maybe they're not even playing anything maybe they're actors but can you look at the orchestra and work out what they're playing in places you should That's be able to point. see hands right yeah in theory i mean i guess it depends, yeah, it even, depends how I mean, close if they, they even had a score if they were not just 
yeah, doing the arm movement. Yeah, because they'd have no reason to, even on the sound redo version, exactly. they wouldn't film them, they wouldn't record the sound of them actually playing in the orchestra pit. No, and yeah. most of the time, you know, there's somebody writing the music that is not affiliated to the film in any way, so... yeah. You know, they'd have no reason to do it. But it could have been an interesting idea. And I wonder if, again, being so in time with the conductor, they've just uh, managed to get a tiny snapshot of what was actually being played. But it is a thing that films still get wrong when you see music dubbed on. Modern films do this sometimes when you have, like, when you look at an orchestra being filmed or something and then you hear what's being played and you look Mm. at what they're doing and they don't match up. Still still happens. Yeah. So it's it's a nice bit of detail to get that get that right to make that feel right anyway yes cat of course a black cat the first sign that you know something is up and it was still definitely a trope for bad luck in 1929 most commonly Mm -hmm. in western society certainly animals all look different and weird in the past i think we can all agree it's not just a case of like a little creepy dog in a painting no even filmed (laughs) animals all the breeds have changed since then so even a wild or a feral cat will look different now to how it did in 1929 or the 20s rather and then there's a giant bat face which is a prop backstage uh, that is stunning it's a real like a little circus leftover i can imagine it being it's supposed to be i assume that is a nod to the dracula show that was on that bella lugosi was in before he was that'll be happening now yeah or you know around uh, contemporaneous yes so it has that nod to things that are in theatres which is perfect but also i found it very Candyman when yeah. she climbs through the mouth yeah it has that real there's an overbearing circusy ghost ridey yeah element definitely. To it. although if anyone's listening to all of this stuff <laughs> that we've done for or which, that i've been in yeah for which thanks yeah thank you first ghost train didn't exist when this film was around it wasn't called a ghost train, was no, it? it was it hadn't 1936. Been invent- I haven't been invented yet. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I love the the design of the the cellars and the backstage areas, the set design here. Mm. Um, I understand that they went to some lengths to try to get accurate representations of like what the Paris Opera was like backstage. Uh, but very few people had actually been there and they were quite <laughs> jealous of it and they got some descriptions of it but it didn't help them much so somebody essentially just made it all up God. and it, and it looks exactly as you want them to yes. they look exactly as you imagine that they would which is much better than going for realism because yes. no one's going to you know, no well they made everything check. four times as tall and i think that really helped it made everything look much bigger than the people involved and therefore much more overwhelming and much more like things can lurk in the shadows than just, you know, if you've ever worked in drama, <laughs> a, a small curtain, you yeah. know, an area that's covered in grease paint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Signed photographs of people that you've never heard of stuck to the wall. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the this, this stench of failure. Oh, that's sad. I love the smell of a theatre. It makes me all... um. It gets my adrenaline up. It reminds me of being on stage. The dancers' shadows are heavenly. 
And the ballet dancers use their tutus to hide behind when they're afraid. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely adorable. <laughs> That's lovely, isn't it? There's a lot of Ghibli-esque movements in these things. Sometimes the dancers, when they're all looking in one direction, one breaks away and pirouettes and then comes back to look. Yeah. Very, like, soot demon-y. Oh, yeah. Cute. Oh, that's lovely. You know. Just... Yes. No, I just had. I just thought that they were all, they appear to act as one. Like the ballet dancers are a discrete unit who do nice. things together, you know, move around as a... Yes. Well, I guess that's also part of it, isn't yeah, it? Because they, they do. He had no nose is interesting. Oh, yes. Are we looking at you, JK? No, JK <laughs> hasn't got enough... Uh, sorry, JK Rowling for anyone that still think she has a name. Oh, of course. Using the the horror of no-nos for Voldemort. Oh, of course he who shall not be named. But it's it's nice because we're building up the idea of the phantom, yes. right? Yeah. Um, no-nos. So we've seen his we've seen his back. We've had this there's a strange fella in box number 5 and he wears a mask and never speaks to anyone. Yep. And the guy who's giving us this Description of the Phantom is he is he the one who's clutching a mannequin head? It's a head of Jesus in the, his lap. Right, isn't yeah. that fascinating? Yeah. One, why? <laughs> Two, what? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's just it's creepy, isn't it? It's creepy and weird. He's dressed like a sheriff of the old west. I went for God is dead. Oh. Yeah, God is Very dead nice. here. You know, Jesus yeah. has fallen. There's sure. no savior. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if they thought that far. <laughs> no, that's that's lovely though. I really like that. Yeah. He's definitely the one telling us the rules, and again, that's the yeah. theme. Yeah. So we get the rules quite early on because it's early cinema, and no one knows the rules are coming. They'll just be in <laughs> despair watching dancers twirl. Oh yes, they yes. have greatly irritated Carlotta. Oh yes, prima. I say prima ballerina. It's not a ballet. But, no, um, prima opera. Exactly. <laughs> That's terrible. What they called the main singer, the Well, I mean stunt, but I assume that the I, headline. I, it's a soprano role, I guess. The um there is definitely a term, isn't there, yeah. for like the 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 star opera singer. If you know listeners, why not drop us a line at hauntedpitcherpalace at gmail dot com. So Carlotta's wound up, her mum comes in, weirdly. <laughs> yeah. Um to let them know. One thing I really love about this, and it comes up again and again, that thumb on the edge of the screen when they're read, we're meant to be reading a letter. Now, handwriting has greatly changed since then. Everybody was trained deeply cursive for many, many years. And again, coming off the back of teachers that were actual Victorians, <laughs> you're <laughs> yeah. going to get some swirly script. And I actually struggled to read it, and it used to be my job to decipher handwriting. So it's interesting that how much it's changed. But the thumb in the corner is painted on because obviously nobody could hold it still enough for the camera to pick up. Yeah, and I never noticed that. Like, so it's a plate like they do in Tom and Jerry. You're absolutely right, but yeah. I just, I just never saw it. I love I, it. It's I, just so not yeah. her thumb. Yeah. No, and as soon as you'd said it, <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh yeah, of course it isn't. But it's, it's good enough. Yes, it works. That, that I just never, never saw but it. But also, what a letter artist to be able to mm-hmm. do that at, of such a scale as well, because that will be bigger to to sit in yeah, the screen. Yeah, because the, like the, the films, because the cameras are, are bigger, right? Yes, exactly. So it has to be quite a big. So someone's hand lettered it and painted the this really lovely bit of work. I would, I would love one of them actually for the wall. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> a, a giant threatening letter. No, from the as an art piece. Oh, I to see. have the, that frame. Mm-hmm. In a frame is, is yeah. a beautiful thing. I then said, uh-oh, it's basically showgirl. So this <laughs> <laughs> this letter that Carlotta's mother comes steaming through 
holding mm-hmm. is a threat from the Phantom saying if you're if Carlotta performs I'm going to be well angry we need Christina Christina to perform she's well better and I, I, I love her basically but without saying that so it's just yeah. it, there will be consequences if Carlotta performs the lead role it's very clearly a threat yes. though he doesn't say exactly what's going to happen but no uh, she loses her mind and she comes in and moans to the owners, the new owners. New owners, of course, they've just bought this and they've just taken on this mm. concern and then now suddenly they're learning all about the Phantom. And he dic- dictates the casting, apparently, of their shows. Yes. So this clearly has frightened the two new owners enough and they don't want anybody getting hurt, so they're like, lol, sorry, but let's just stick Christina on and give her a bash because we don't want Carlotta being harmed in any way. She's our big money moment. Yeah. They put Christina on stage, we assume. Yeah. We're shown a bit of that. We're shown a bit of her, in inverted commas, singing. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite lovely, actually. She has this amazing Art Nouveau hair. You know, it's down to the floor and wavy and looks like a Julia Margaret Cameron photo. Julia Margaret Cameron's female photographer, way ahead of her time, doing a lot of pre-Raphaelite art through the medium of photography. It's absolutely stunning and worth a look, sort of operating around the 1860s, late. But then Christina comes off stage and her deeply disappointing partner marches up and says, oh good, you've done your fame bit, now let's impregnate you multiple times. <laughs> yes. Yes, now that you've tasted success, darling, you can give it all up and just pump out babies for me. Yes. That's Raoul, who I believe is a nobleman of some, some description. Yes, um, Uh, anybody that's seen Bedazzled knows why I said it like that. (laughs) The, oh, and I've put no tar, soldier boy. Yeah, (laughs) fair enough. I've also written the words no tar, hun, bye. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Hanging around with me too much, yeah. But that's very much the the vibe that she gives off, as well as she might. So then sexy voiced angel Phantom wins every time, right? So he's described as having an angelic voice in the intertitles. Mm-hmm that's sort of floating through the wall and she's immediately head turned they do some nice shadow work to show that he's there and lurking and she's all turned on and that a bit like uh, i would say the dracula trope of that kind of titillated post-victorian lady sure getting goosebumps from a from a sinister shadow you know it's quite lovely it's quite demonic in a way actually the way oh, people definitely. view the tempter right yes it's yeah the way people view that kind of corruption the and think of your career and your master yes is the threat right and i've, <laughs> I've put dom goals it really is <laughs> dom goals yes. the way he treats it no absolutely but it is also the 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 thing this is the thing that turns up a lot in cinema about I'm thinking about the red shoes, for instance, and about like oh yes, that the high-level artistic work requires submission, basically. Yes, absolutely. You know? And you haven't seen Black Swan, but it's very much there right. as well. Yeah, and I think in what I, from what I do remember of the novel, there is a lot more detail gone into of, of the training that this angelic voice yes. phantom gives to Christina to to improve her voice and her performance and make her a star. Ah, I see, I see. That's so interesting. Actually, very V for Vendetta. Yeah, There's a lot of parallel between... Goodness me, yes. ...Phantom and including Mask, including Cape, including Dungeon, including... Yeah. Oh, of course. I've never never seen it, but you're absolutely right. Oh, how interesting. Um, (laughs) Yeah, whereas here it's just sort of a bit of a fait accompli that, you know, he is 
her master. Yes. <laughs> and yes, but certainly in the book, the reason that she's such a star is because of his extraordinary training and his extraordinary skill. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Carlotta's mother is back in the next scene, mm. raging again. There's been another. There's been another letter. Her dress is incredible. Very, very gothic. Gothicana, if you like. Mm. Yeah. Sort of camp. High camp, angry mother. It, I find yeah, it's it very stage mother thing. It is. It? it is. It's it's an interesting trope. But here's the thing, and in my notes, I think I agree with myself. <laughs> <laughs> She's the bad parent at the root of this horror film. <laughs> when we're looking for them in all of our oh, other yeah. episodes, I found the it. She's the bad parent. She is pushy. She puts her daughter in danger and jeopardy at the risk of an unknown danger as well. Mm. Something that people are genuinely and truly fearing all around her. And fair enough, she says a lot of it comes from Carlotta, but when we meet Carlotta, she's not a powerhouse of rage and fury. No, 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 no. no. It's all coming from her mother. So far, so good for it. Oh, yes, and then the the lovely quote from the two men, who are clearly just a little bit shaken by literally every single thing that happens to the owners. Yeah. Who say, so far, so good for a house with a curse on it. Yes. You know, like, we're filling up, (laughs) considering we're cursed, we're all right. Oh, yes, because that's, that's the threat of the second letter. That yeah, is that there'll be a curse on the show. And they're like, ah, it's all right for a curse, isn't it? Yeah. We'll fill it up, full house. Yeah. Idiots. <laughs> I then put, lol, love interest is a raging prick. That's Raul again, isn't Raul, it? Raul, mm. yeah. yeah. He's rubbish. He should have been cast as, one, as a kind of, with the name Raul, he should have been some sort of exotic fighter from... Another land, sure, truly. yeah. So South America, or... South America would have been perfect. Imagine that this passionate South American love interest with yeah. like that tiny little waist looking like a tango dancer, yeah, yeah, or just a Toreador or something, or, or absolutely. Well, yeah, so yeah, similar. Well, it's tango, isn't it? Of course, there we go. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's that's the archetype, right? Yeah, absolutely. And coming in and blustering and all the rest of it, and what we get is pencil moustache, wet weekend, who looks Stuffed a bit shirt, yeah, sort of, sort of vaguely perturbed by the fact that he has to put his penis in somebody like it's just <laughs> awful imagine that yeah he should be he should be more charismatic 100% so that we care that she ends up with him yeah in some way or we hope that she ends up with him or he comes like there's some rescuing element or he should be more mustache twirl and villain yeah he should yes. be more one or the other i think personally i would prefer him to be the evil love interest that mm-hmm. tears her away from her one true love, this creepy evil demon. But then I've always sided with the beast in Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> of <course>. So <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not the one to ask. <laughs> and then I put, oop, she bought the house down. Lol, lol, lol. Oh, very nice. Uh-huh. This sequence, I, I, I love this sequence. The whole with thing with the flashing lights. Yes. And I put, wowzers, 1929, what a mega stunt. That is so much money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or at least so much knowledge of practical effects. But yeah, you go. A little bit of both. Well, no, absolutely. Just that. It's what just, happens? Describe. Well, the the Phantom in silhouette again. It's, it's a wonderful performance. We're going to talk about Lon Chaney's performance yes, a bit later on length. when we meet him properly. But it's clearly him as well doing most of this. Brings down the large chandelier in the middle oh, of the performance. Yes, that was stunning. And. It's yeah, huge. It's, it's theatre size exactly. in their massive novelty theatre <laughs> that they've made up. You know, it's massive and it comes down and it's amazing. So yes, they bring down. Well, they bring down the Phantom. 
brings down the chandelier in a wonderful sequence, as discussed. I really like the curtain shutting as well. It's, again, very Moulin Rouge, but very staid, where they shut the curtain on the performers while chaos is happening off stage. Yeah. They close the curtain off in a kind of, in a protective way, almost. And our man, who is, as in one of our men, who's like one of the kind of secondary characters, more the Tallulah Trek oh, yeah. from Moulin Rouge, this kind of semi-narrator fool character, if you like, is the one who puts his head out of the curtains to check. Yes. He's also the person that was accompanying the dancers to find out information about the Phantom. He also pops up again later and he's quite a nice sort of sort of archetypal. Yeah, he's very fool. He's very um, puck, if yeah. you like. There's not yeah. a lot of control, but he's very puck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can see that. And again, in the, the theatrical setting yes. adds to that, I think, a little bit. Meanwhile, Raoul was turned down. They did have Good. that conversation where she said, like, no, I'm not going to give this up. Yes. Christine. I owe them, basically, was her thing. Like, I owe them a lot. Yeah, I'm not just going to now immediately turn around and um, pump children out. And be boring like you. So he shows his credentials, you know, as a a good, upstanding citizen by sneaking into her dressing room. Yes. Just in time to see the mirror open. Which is lovely. So good. And that's another bit of cocktail, actually. You mentioned the Belle Elabette. Yes. In Orfe is the Jean Cocteau film about the Orpheus legend. Well, loosely based on the yeah. Orpheus legend, also set in the... I don't think I've seen that bank, one, have I? Left Bank in Paris. I don't know, but if you haven't, it's wonderful. Yes, I really it really recommend it. But that features Travel Through Mirrors as well, so Ugh. it does make me think that this must, must have... The, the influence of this, you know, must have come from France over to uh. America and then gone back to France again, which is lovely. But yeah, she's going through the mirror, through the looking glass, yes, to the absolutely. enchanted world of the secret passages of a theatre. And... We are in pink because we are dream world or fantasy now, yeah. aren't we? We're in the phantom's world. We're in one of the layers of his lair. Absolutely. His and as you were saying, because we've had all these oversized backstage mm. things, there's, we know there's plenty of room back there for someone to, to live and to hide and to, to do all this stuff. Yes. We've got some Nosferatu action where his shadow touches her first. The mm. phantom's shadow touches so nice. her before he does. Um, soft mask is definitely more disconcerting. We often see the Phantom of the Opera has that, certainly in my generation, the hard one half of the face mask oh, yes. that we see in Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah, and I think that's where that's from. I think so too, yes, and it's his. It's a beautiful piece of design, actually. I'm not oh, going to yeah. lie. Like It's a lovely item, and it's in all the promo, and it makes sense. But the soft mask is 100% worse. The soft mask gives me heavy Elephant Man vibes and heavy circus freak and psycho killer look yeah. you know it's really like wearing the skin of another human it it, it freaked me out personally and it, it's the first sign that this is a horror film up until now it's been a bit of a kind of fantasy romance in a weird way you know it's been a i would say wouldn't you yeah yeah i go along with that because it it rattles along at a feral yeah. pace yeah as as are we <laughs> well that's true but you know <laughs> yeah, yeah got going it. with the material absolutely but yeah it's it's a really creepy thing it's overshadowed very much by what's coming later mm. and then I said the Phantom's body language is so tender and beautiful and I think this is a good time to talk about Lon Chaney and why his body language might be that incredibly communicative so 
I looked this up. Do you want to? Do you want no, to? No, I want you to do it. Well, his parents were deaf. Is the short version of this so amazing? Yeah, his parents met at a school for the deaf mm. in London, and I I read a couple of sources that suggested that they were also mute. Wow. Um, I'm not sure, but either way, they they couldn't they couldn't hear him. And that when I first read that, it felt like one of those 1920s 1930s background facts about the star. That, yes, that that's made up studios would come up exactly. Yes. You know, uh, Rita Hayworth, Carmen Miranda, all both had. Mm, very fanciful backstories right yeah. and this feels like one of them you know the amazing man of a thousand faces who learned his extraordinary gestures from the cradle because his parents couldn't hear him cry i'm not gonna lie but how unbelievably psychologically damaged is was lon cheney uh, this is not me. I need to reword that, because this is not me having anything bad to say about having deafened mute parents. This is me saying you do that, and then you go into silent film. So actually, you are literally never heard in any element of your life. Your whole oh, existence Lord. is silence to the people that observe you. Oh God, I can. T- I mean, I'll tell you something else that will not please, make it better. Please don't make it better. Make it worse. So the. The sound, the now now lost sound version of this, yes, was the same was was a 1929 reworking of the 1925 film. But Lon Chaney was at the time under contract to another studio, yes, so could not appear and do his own voice. And but they also Universal were forbidden to get another actor to voice the Phantom because he was just about to make a talkie film for somebody else. Good grief. Which he did. He made one talkie film and then he died of throat cancer. Are you joking? Throat cancer? Yeah, it was his throat. I have to get on my witchiness here. You continue for Um, a second. It was his throat um, hemorrhage, I think, and and he died in about 1930 or so. And he died of lung cancer, um, although it was a throat hemorrhage. That's wild. During the treatment of that. He made one sound film. They said that was the, what he was making when this was re-released as a sound picture mm. called The Unholy Three, which I haven't seen. It, uh, I think it still survives somewhere, but it hasn't been commercially used as far as I know. It's very hard to get hold of. But I'm told, and I've read, that he actually had a very nice voice, a very good course, speaking voice. Of course he did, of course he did. That's which so amazing. not a given, because a lot of silent film actors didn't make the no, transition because they, when they opened their mouth, what came out didn't match. We've all seen Singing in the Rain, yes. Of course. And the artist is about this as well, you know. I mean, um, talk. what did you say it was called? What? The Unholy Three. The Unholy Three. Talking of the Unholy Three, Go I have on. to put my witch hat on for this. <laughs> so there's a person who died in recent years called Louise Hay that speaks about pain being stored in the body and that meaning something, right? So this idea that in a witchy-woo way, this Lon Chaney... To be unheard, 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 and then die of a throat hemorrhage is the most energetic ridiculousness. <laughs> like, you could give it as a case study to someone that does energy work and they would look at you with sort of... <laughs> yeah, uh, laying it on a bit thick, do you think? Frightened eyes. <laughs> yeah, it, laying yeah. it on so thick, being like, I wonder what happens when you speak, you know? <laughs> yeah. How frightening and amazing. I mean, I hope he, I hope he heard himself on film before he died. I hope there was time for that. He died in 1930. So and when was that film? 1929. So oh, good. Like so it wasn't during production. I mean, he did at least live to see. He yeah. saw his film. Yeah, and it was marketed. Like I've seen the posters. It's like Lon Chaney speaks. Like this good, was. It was a good. big attraction. He spoke and then he died though. Yeah. That's so. Yeah. 
Unlikely and weird. Anyway, carry on. And then, weird, and then you know, weirdly, his son. Because Lon, Lon Chaney... Lon is short for Leonidas, by Thank the way. You. I did wonder. Yes, um, so did I. But his son... Um, Leonidas, strong name. Good name, isn't it? And yeah. not shortened to Leo. Leo, no. Leo Chaney. That's something work, about yeah. Lon. But it's a, it's a good name, because his son, whose name wasn't Lon, and wasn't Chaney, because it was in marriage, you know... Yes. Marriage, um, took on the mantle, became Lon Chaney Jr., and went on to make horror films. Um, I love everything about that. Isn't yes, it? Yeah. that's so good. That's <laughs> father worship as well. He is a case study. But <laughs> right, yeah. All of, yes, amazing. But his work here is extraordinary. I mean, this is... It's the performance at the heart of the film. The other people, we've already talked about, role and the shortcomings mm. of his casting young christina does does fine with what she has to do yes but but it is cheney that's the heart of the film and his performance that that makes it to me yes so his name is norman kerry it's raul it's raul but his full name is Vi- vicomte raul de cheney <laughs> or chagney Depending Sh- on Sh- yeah. Shani. Whoopsie Whoops. doodle. Ooh, la, la. Not in the studio. Oh yes, and it's Mary Philbin is Christine. Okay. Oh yes. So, Raoul, what were you saying about him? Oh, being shown up horribly by Lon Chaney. Yeah, yeah. Yes, grossly. So <laughs> yes, for sure. Norman Kerry grossly being shown up by Lon Chaney throughout this film. Who Norman Kerry, I feel like have you seen Shakespeare in Love? Yes. The one that says, I shall play the apothecary. And they give him a role because he's a debt guy. Yes, I remember or, him. You know, yes, yeah. that's exactly how I would place Norman Kerry. Well, that's harsh on Norman Kerry. I, but I, I believe it's true where sometimes yeah. they have to be like, no, not at the camp. Yeah. Not down the lens. Yeah. You know? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, it's a Sorry shame. Sorry to his family. I mean, it's not a great part, but he doesn't do it very well either. <laughs> <laughs> so he, so Phantom. Yes. Leads her into the shadows, and I put she's not into it. No. <laughs> but there's a go- some gorgeous indoor horse riding once she's fainted and stopped being irritating. It's very Escher, actually. Mm. Yeah, um, well, we were into this strange mirror world, aren't we? We said. are, and it has a sexy black lake, which is very, very River Sticks, mm, right? Very yeah. River Sticks, very the ferryman. Of course. All these You're lovely things. Going on a things. journey between worlds. You are, and yikes, it's all a bit nice guys finish last for me. With his little speech. Oh, yes. Where he's like, no one likes me, I play the organ. No. I mean, put it down, you incel. I'm not allowed to say that anymore, am I? But still. (laughs) Lots of uh, snow white cactus arms. Do you know what I mean by that? Cactus arm panic? Cactus arm panic. Oh, oh, okay, yes. Oh! (laughs) All that business. Yeah, well... Hard to do on radio. Uh, Yes. (laughs) But maybe we can maybe illustrate this on the on the social media or something. But she's my note on this is that she's just being assaulted by men who are in love with her, like constantly. That's her. That's her lot in life. You I know. guess. Yes. Immediately after Raoul throws himself at her, the Phantom does all of this. That's true. The the sort of being gondoliered through the underground river business I've, is is Lady of Shalott. Like there's oh, a painting. Oh yes, I forget yes. who it's by. For John Waterhouse. It could be. John William Waterhouse? Oh, oh, come on, brain. Oh. Can you do it, Lady of Shalott? John William Waterhouse. I can have it in an air horn if you'd like. Please, it's like the one time I've remembered a name ever. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, here we go, yes. Snow Corrin. White Cactus Arms in Fear because she is a woman in her 20s film and therefore must be frightened of absolutely everything. <laughs> but, hello, second siren. It's a busy night. Oh, we are being blessed. This is why when Ben watches absolutely terrible 30s melodramas featuring a plucky reporter woman i am consistently <laughs> shocked that she always stands up to a room full of men now obviously she is queer coded as anything and <laughs> is supposed to be an outrageous lesbian that can't be reached but it still shocks me because the things that came before it are these wailing strange cactus arm women sure. who faint at the sight of of peni you know they they are unable to stand let alone <laughs> Yeah, they're they... unable to stand for long periods although she did say no thank you i have a career so there is a progressive element but then as soon as fear is here men are supposed to rescue because that's the rules isn't yeah it? absolutely i was gonna say it's the perils of pauline thing of being tied to the railway tracks yes exactly exactly the phantom sleeps in a coffin and i wondered what came first actually is this a trope from dracula the novel somewhere and we're like, you know what bad things do? Sleep in coffins. Is this as goth as he makes it sound? Where he's like... Oh, um, yeah, I sleep in this to remind me that one day I'll be dead. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. Is it's much more... Emo. Yeah, much yeah. more purple than that. Or is he just... Are they just like, what's horrible? I guess being buried alive, let's have him hate himself this much. You know, like, I wonder where the where it's coming from and then i put he made some hefty assumptions there because he's like set up a ridiculous swan bed yeah for her where he's I, like here's I where you're gonna sleep yeah of course and oh, like the satin good. walls yeah i mean I, I understand her displeasure at being stuck there it's full harem yeah yeah you know. she's probably been installed <laughs> with, with, without her consent entirely can i can i i'm gonna do this quote from the film hmm. that from one of the intertitles that I could put here in this film or I could have it said by a sort of 18-year-old Cancerian male circa about 2005. Go on. For many years I have lived in these cellars, a nameless legend. It's a it's a forum dweller, isn't it? In <laughs> yeah. the early noughties. It's a yeah, forum dweller. Yeah, he lives dweller. in his, the basement. Lives in his parents' basement. He's incredibly good at guitar since the divorce. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's painful, yeah. but it's true. Yeah. Absolute emo. Oh, yes. Sorry. A Night of Vague Horrors dash Tortured Dreams I thought would be a nice title. Oh, lovely. Yes, we'll use that. Her shoes are divine. Everybody's shoes are divine. Whenever we see shoes, they're glorious. And particularly Christina's shoes. Is she Christina or Christine? I've, I've said Christina, but, but I know you do double check. Christine. Oh. So Christine's shoes are all bows. You know, they're that lovely pointy thing. I used to have a book of cinderella where the shoes were that kind of unnecessarily pointy they're very nearly those ballet fetish heels but not right. as tall you know they okay. really curve over they're lovely yeah. items um <laughs> and then i just go into horrible puns and um, i will say mary philbin who plays christine she swings between being epic and being lazy <laughs> and i think she's extremely good as soon as she's with lon cheney that makes sense yeah, yeah. because obviously it's raising her up to a standard sure. she's watching him and reflecting and i imagine him to be quite empowering in a way because you feel like you can really let go and i think she's being very stilted and strange with the scenes with um compte 
<laughs> we'll call him that little <laughs> comp. <laughs> well, this might be a reflection of some of the backstage troubles oh. that the film had, because it's normally directed by Rupert Julian, but uh, some of the reports I read about what happened on the set was Rupert Julian would say that he wanted Lon Chaney to do, a th- you know, to play a scene in a certain oh, way, yes. and Lon Chaney is reported to have said, "Tell him to go to hell. I'll do it how I want." <laughs> Uh, which is, doesn't make for a harmonious working relationship mm. with your star, you know. But it could be that the stilted business is mm. Rupert Julian's style, direction. Sounds like the words of a man with a blocked throat energy centre. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> That's weird. I'm sure I heard something. <laughs> it could be that... Uh, whereas the scenes with Lon Chaney, she's being directed by Lon Chaney. <laughs> oh, I see. Of course. Well, that makes so much sense. Chaney didn't it? take direction, so it could be that he yes. just he. I don't. This is supposition, but he might have said like, "Hey, Philbin, you know, don't listen to that." Yeah, if you want to make a nice there. film, yeah. if you want to make a good film, let's do we'll this. Do it this way. So, uh, but she has a very modern face as well. She has a face that could literally exist now, exist then, and exist before and forever. Well, as you um, say, there's a couple of very modern elements to it. She's like she's like, she uses her career on the stage of yes. all places, you know, over respectable marriage to a boring man. Nobility, he's got money. Yeah, they do have they have chemistry on the page. <laughs> well, also when I say a modern face, it's I'm referring to the concept of time-related ideals in cinema and in fashion and in photography and she does not a 20s face have Mm. she has a much wider nose than normal her lips are not the line with two dots they are very much like they're not full but they're kind of cupid's bow they're that era she's an older and a more recent beauty than than the 20s she doesn't have the tiny eyebrows we're in full she has an actually quite interestingly soft face that isn't the moon face of the 20s and Mm. early 30s as well so it's really unusual also all those kind of ringlets and things really feel like an overhang from 1910s like they are yeah it's nearly edwardian it's very strange so that's there and i don't think it's all costume you know i'm looking at pictures of her in different things and it's very much her look she seems quite like someone who is employed for the vintage face <laughs> sure in the way that you get someone like oh i don't know uh i can only think of like a couple of specific examples right so i'm thinking about florence Pugh in lady that's Macbeth. Who, that's a really good example yes she has a face that can do modern and a face that can do old i'm actually thinking of more people that look like they're fresh from another time yes. so the person i'm actually talking about is ruth wilson Oh, yes. Ruth Wilson has an incredible face that could have existed at any time in the last sort of hundred years and be completely acceptable. Oh, yeah, she's you know, wonderful. She's an amazing actress and she could just pop up anyway. You know, she was Jane Eyre and she's all sorts yeah, of... Yeah, of all these amazing things. So really somebody like that, this person has that kind of face, very malleable and good as an actor. That's what you want. You want somebody that can fit. Yeah. I was going to say as well, ooh, he's got the organ out and it's flooded our basement. <laughs> do, do, do. Oh, dear. Yes, more air horns. 
yeah, he's not so good at the social stuff. Is uh, no. is uh, our Eric, as we find out his name? I think um, we do. And guess what? She had one job. It was don't touch the mask. No touch. You won't like. Oh look, you touch. You did not like. And, and you can see it's it's almost like you can see the cogs in her brain going around as well. Yeah. Going, I mustn't. I mustn't touch the. Don't the touch mask. the and big she's red button of excitement. That, exactly, yeah. just her hand is just going towards it, and she cannot resist. No. But yes, she's very good at the. He's very good on the organ. So it's the. It's the no, no sniggering at the back. It's the old duality in him, right? You know, yes. he's not very good at the social interaction stuff, as you might expect from somebody who's been living alone in the basement of the. Yeah, he's opera. literally every one of my exes. Not so good on the social stuff. Great musician. Great musician, exactly. Yeah. But yes, don't touch the mask. He says, "Don't, don't touch the mask." He says, "Okay, I won't. I won't touch the. I won't touch. I won't touch the deeply touchable mask." Touch and the, then so touchable. Gorgeous reveal, absolutely gorgeous isn't reveal. Isn't it though? Isn't it? And I said that must have um, bleeped people up, hardcore. It must have really messed with people. It really heads. did. So this was the big selling point of the film, I guess. Yeah. There was no pictures of it released to the to the press. Wow. Uh, in any of the pre-publicity photographs, his face was blanked out, but he was not in the mask. Yeah. And of course, it was done by. Lon Chaney, he did it himself. Wow! Because in 1925, when they're making it, at least the first time, yeah, you know, studios have costume departments, right? They have lighting departments. They have mm-hmm. uh, set designers, set builders. They have camera crew. They have a lot of things that you expect on modern movies. One thing they didn't have was makeup department. No, it doesn't exist. So no, so it's all him. Absolutely amazing. That's a lot of work. He's got some real presence as well. We've talked about it, but his body language is incredible. It really changes once he's revealed. And I put death threats, casual. You know, he's just sort of casually spitting feathers because, again, she had one thing one not thing. to do. Two strip Technicolor now. Yes. We're well, on... before we get to oh, I was just going to say that she promises to never see Raul again on pain of death to them both. Mm-hmm. And then immediately... Immediately, like thirty seconds later, yeah, I realize she's like, Yo, this Raul. is a bit of editing. She's this is the first place she goes, and it's like, oh, it's like, I don't know why you don't take him seriously, given that we've just seen him drop a chandelier on yeah the the innocent paying audience of the Paris <laughs> Opera House. Yeah, but two, yes, but then we're into two strip Technicolor. Two strip Technicolor now. It's a wonderful thing. We are in a ballroom scene. It looks like Christmas because they've chosen red and green. <laughs> it's because <laughs> those are the colours that show up well on... Exactly. And because of that, it looks color. like we're watching 3D images without the glasses. Yeah. Um, the very early 3D. There's some mad mingling. <laughs> <laughs> very mad mingling. Spectral figure robed in red, A. Eh? So recently I made Ben watch The Mask of the Red Death, which is one of my favourite films i think actually thinking about it it really is it's up there it's in my top sort of 10 15 please check it out it's... I guess, I guess i'm not going to talk about it now because we are going to talk about it on the I was pod say, at, some, at point. some point we will watch it but check it out anyway in your spare time because it's wonderful oh, all that God, spare so time good. you have so good fine but... make time make time there's <laughs> something else that you're going to do for an hour and a half that isn't as good as this so <laughs> watch the film watch the corman film instead of that other thing you're going to do i like that yeah <laughs> You're going to talk about the death. The I was going death. to say, Red, Mask of the Red Death, as I say, I won't go too much into it, but that is definitely a theme. There is a spectral figure robed in red wandering around at that party too, so it's very much like a nod to it, because it's Mask of the Red Death is a Poe story, so it obviously predates 
This. Yes. The perfect costumes everywhere and the perfect costume. Oh my God, the skull face in a red robe and a hat. I feel like could be my Halloween outfit. No one would get it, but it might be what I go as it's this year. It's a very strong look. Like it. Yes. And again, coming so quickly on the on the heels of the face reveal as well. Yes. And it's like, oh, the makeup work and the costume work and stuff here, for me, is really working at this point. Yes. Like, not as a historical curiosity, but it looks impressive. It yeah. looks good. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, in fact, they reference it again. So they say, thus does the Red Death rebuke your merriment, which is a quote, I believe, from Pope. From the from the story. Yeah. Yes. That makes sense. And then I put bloody idiot Raoul, because he is. And there's a plan to meet upstairs. Yeah. It should be said, somebody that I haven't mentioned yet is the creepy man. Oh, Yes. I love Creepy Man. He's my favourite character. <laughs> he is. He doesn't get much to do for he the first half. He doesn't get much to do for the first half. Half or more. But even. he does get to look like a kind of discount Boris Karloff <laughs> in heavy eyebrow paint, looking menacing and mysterious. And I just wanted to drop him in there because it's important. <laughs> yeah. We'll need him later. But he has been lurking at every corner, and it does look like he's a baddie working for the Phantom. We're yeah, meant well, to I think, think it's that. first, like, we are. Yes, exactly. Whether he is the Phantom, but then, of yes. course, we are told that the Phantom hasn't got a nose, etc, etc. Yes, and he turns up, he seems to be around whenever the Phantom's up to mischief, so it does look like he's spying on people for him. Mm -hmm. There is rooftop lighting, which is absolutely stunning. So Christine and Raoul make a plan to meet on the roof in a very Notre Dame-style roofing mm -hmm. in environment that is gorgeous. That's lovely. And then I put, oops, he's behind you. <laughs> because the phantom's lurking like a little creature, uh, like a like a gargoyle. Um, yeah, above the absolutely. Gargoyle, yeah, yeah. Looking at everything, I put here that Carlotta really isn't a fun role, is it? So Carlotta's like trying her best to exist in the world, <laughs> in the world of opera, and every single time there's just something awful happening. And I think Carlotta at this point has died. Off screen, her mother is distraught or something. There's some element where she's being harmed again. Yes, I forget. I remember her mother popping up again. And um, I think it was to say, oh, she's sick. She'll never sing again, basically. Mm -hmm. like, she's never coming back or it freaked her out or she's dead. <laughs> Phantom on the Statue is a really iconic thing. He's in full monster makeup and he plays the monster so tragically. Like, it really, you do feel for it. Like, it, he's heartbroken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's 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 the something of the humanity that uh, yeah. Chaney brings to it, even yeah. when he's as you say, in full monster, full monster drag. Mm. He's wearing a red cape in this uh, scene, and this is, I mean, I believe this was done digitally for the restoration, but this was, this is a period-accurate touch that some of the prints had the Phantom's cape hand-coloured on the, oh, the print. They just coloured, I say they just, like it was a, like a 35 millimetre frame is not very big so it's a lot of yeah, it's very a lot of like really sexy kind of steampunk monocle eyeglass thing painting work yes exactly frame by frame and it, it it looks gorgeous i understand that there were a few different color sequences filmed but the but that the bell mask and this ah, are the only that survive okay because not every not every print would have them in the same way with the tinting not every print would would have them because it was expensive, more expensive to produce them. Yes, that makes so, sense. So a, a few cinemas and a few territories probably would just get your bog standard black and white. Yeah. I said, oh, that was a very romantic hug, actually. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Lon Chaney's there being very physical, great with his eyes as well, but then underneath it all, Raul and Christine manage an actually romantic and believable hug. It's yeah. a nice bit of holding. And then Especially I put, when you contrast it with the weird, creepy worship business that yes. the Phantom does, you know? And, the you know, the Phantom is physically repulsive, right? Yep. This is the thing. And Raul is not quite as... Be- you know, I do feel like he should be more... <laughs> beefy but like yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm being too harsh on old Norman like he does fine here he does fine here as a contrast yeah I mean I put who is eyeliner man lol <laughs> yeah eyeliner man pops up again very lord of misrule party vibes it's kind of got out of control and then suddenly screaming because a man is hanged Ooh. we cut to oh yes very quickly from party 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 in the two tone colour to, I think it's a black and white shot actually. Yeah, we're back in. We're, we're back, back in, in monochrome with the shadow of an actual hanging man oh, on the lovely, wall of the theatre, and it's so beautiful. And it's spotted by our puck type character, our like you know the theatre bod, our backstage man, yeah, yes. stagehand, who is mortified and is like obviously there's been a death, you know the 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 phantom strikes again, mm. kind of thing. It's so amazing. Like, it's just such a beautiful screenshot. And I had a look at... It It just suddenly struck me that one of the pieces of visual language, for example... Oh, some screaming. For example, in our culture now, if I said, you know... Oh, I'm going to make reference to it. There's a, there's a really terrible Star Trek episode <laughs> where Jean-Luc Picard meets a race that only speak in... Events. <laughs> oh, um, so, the old and Jalad at Tanagra. What's that, that episode one. called? Yes, that one. But we could, if the people listening know what I'm but talking about. I just that, don't understand. You said a terrible Star Trek episode. I do not like it particularly. I'm aware that... It, I mean, it's enjoyable, but it's also terrible. It's it, There's just a lot of flaws in the way that language is formed, and I find that irritating. But the idea being that you would use the description of an event as your spoken word and the example that Diana Troy uses is Romeo and Juliet on the balcony to mm-hmm. mean I don't know star-crossed lovers or tragedy sure. or something right yeah. and eventually Picard learns something and balance is restored <laughs> but still this is what I mean so in that in terms of that kind of language if I say to you a bump on the head with stars around it you know what that means you know what that means in cartoon you know what that means in film and I think visual language in that way has changed a lot there are certain things I just don't get in 20s and 30s film where it's like hey you know I'm (laughs) sure we're meant to know what that means but one of the things that's like universal and has been for a really long time is the removal of hats when we witness a death or when we realize that somebody is dead and I researched it and could I find the root of that absolutely not so if anybody knows truly hauntedpicturepalace at gmail.com if you can come up with anything more than reddit threads full of people saying yeah they do it when people die yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's a, a mark of respect, of respect. It's like, yes i know it's a mark of respect and it's not but i'm not why? asking why it's people are being respectful to the recently deceased <laughs> you know, why does it why does it mark that yeah it's true but then it's it's the idea of things bandied around were things like it's to do with the removal of a hat when you're indoors, as in if you're wearing a hat indoors, it looks like you're about to leave really quickly. And so when you take your hat off, it's the idea that you 
aren't going anywhere. You're yeah. going to stick and hang yeah. around with this thing. You're going to pay literally pay respect to it and hang around. There's the idea that you're closer to God. You know, like you've got better contact with right. God. Right, yes, there's, no, there's no, no cloth intermediary. He hates cloth. <laughs> Famously. Yep. That kind of thing, but yes, please help. <laughs> it's a lovely shot, though, of all yes. of, the, of everybody... Because they've cut the body down, haven't they? Yeah. But yes, between him going to get people. Because yes. we see we don't see the body hanging oh, as we see the we see the we shadow see the of shadow. it. But then the shadow's gone. Well no, then the phantom has removed him. The yeah. phantom has laid him down. Yes. Which is nice because it means he's he's right there, he's yes. close by. But you talked about sort of not following some of the conventions of thirties yes. twenty cinema. This is a good point for me to raise that the that bell mask two strip technicolor sequence although it's visually stunning and mm. looks beautiful it doesn't make a whole lot of sense like i don't like why is eric why does he come dressed like if he's if he's there to spy on the love our yep. lovers why does he come like wearing a big red cloak and make a big speech and then at one point when he walks past some people somebody goes oh that's the phantom it's like everyone recognizes him <laughs> even though he's dressed. like it, it doesn't really make a great deal of sense but it doesn't it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's about the spectacle. You know, don't I guess, don't but also, worry too much. But also, he's being death at the party, and people were commenting on death at the party in Mask of the Red Death. Sure, he's he's playing it out. He, it's a kind of moment of like, haha, this is a you know the trope, the Shakespearean trope, if you like, of of the masked ball. Sure, um, and he hiding has threatened everything. death to them. I mean, yes, yeah, I, exactly. I see that, but it's like, yeah. It, it it didn't bother me. I just no, it's an interesting it. thing. And then I put now some trippy lighting effects. <laughs> which is interesting so there must have been some bits and pieces um the pulling from the seat what was that about pulling from the seat oh he gets pulled yes he gets pulled under do you remember this yes yeah Who from... pulls? it's the phantom pulling him from from below from beneath yes so this is um role isn't it is being yes. kidnapped he gets kidnapped yes. by being pulled and i I wondered how they... That looked painful. I wonder if they hurt him. Probably. I think it might have been. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get a rise out of Raoul being like, uh-huh. fine, you bloody idiot. Well, no, but I mean, it's clearly him. I think it's not a stunt double. No, because it's, it's not. It's his face as he goes uh, as he goes through. Yeah, this is yeah. where we find out as well, or around a bit here. It's uh, the eyeliner man is the secret police. Thank you. Exactly. Yes. His name is... Ledoux. Indeed. Does that mean something? The, the, the two. double, the two. Yeah. Arthur Edmund Carew playing Ledu. Oui. Oh, yes, because this is we're in France. You yes. Know. <laughs> yes. Nominally yes. so, anyway. Yes. And we find out that uh, your man Eric, the Phantom, uh, escaped Devil's Island, where he was put because he's criminally insane. Yes. Which again is pure melodrama and spectacle. And how did he get back? Doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. No. He's dangerous. He's very dangerous. He's a criminal lunatic. And um, now he has a Vicomte with him. Um, if it helps, Ledoux is a nickname related to the Sweet One and is often translated oh, as Sweet, so he's Detective Sweet. Detective Sweet, of course, yeah. Do, uh, do like Dolce Vita. Eyeliner Man, yes, he's been following him for some time, so has not actually been... He's just the secret police, duh. <laughs> he's not actually been helping him, yeah. he's been hindering, if you like, or following I then put gorgeous dramatic mirror opening. And then I put, well, at least Raoul and Christine have one thing in common, and that is the absolute lack of ability to follow any solitary instruction. (laughs) Every single time they have one job, they need to immediately do it wrong or go the opposite way or be an idiot. 
Yeah. They're yeah. made for each other. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, it means that when they, on their honeymoon, you know, when they're chatting to each other, yes. they can say, oh, do you remember, remember getting kidnapped by the Phantom? And then go, yeah, I remember that. That happened to me too. I got taken on the boat and across and around. Right. Because they're both, that happens to them both as well. Yes. Very sexy, sexy lighting in the trap door. It changes colour. We get mm. so, and the fact that yeah, well, it was beautiful lighting because it was lighting down into the place. So he's looking up into light. You know, it's this yeah. really beautiful, like they almost spotlit it through the darkness. Oh, some of it is just stunning, and some of it is clearly accidental. By the way, this is not people <laughs> experimenting with film techniques as such. Not all of it. Yeah. This is God. That's an amazing shot. You would work for years to get, but it's just because of the tools they were working with. It's because of the medium that they had at their disposal. Yeah. We then have Lol Weird Shadow Guy. Oh, yes. That policeman must have been a dancer with that posture. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Incredibly well put together. Incredibly carries himself with such a straight back, broad shouldered look, despite being quite a slight man. Brilliant. Here we go. Talking about energetic injuries. Suffered a paralytic stroke. This is a terrible day to be in Phantom of the Opera. Well, it's the curse, isn't it? They're all dead. Oh, Everybody no. involved in this film <gasps> that was produced a mere 96 years ago has now died. Would you, Adam and Eva... Ah, oh, here we go. Actor in 50 films. Last film in 1936. He just moves a lot. You know, he's just in a lot of things. He started in 1919. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's, that's not a early. long period of time to cram in that many credits as well. No, you know? it's not. So after a very brief little bit of research on Arthur Carew, born Hosep Hosepian. That's a good name too. I mean, Hosep Ca- Hosepian, rather. It does mean that he chose that weird Carew thing as he a did, stage name. And he started as Arthur C A R E W Carew. Right. And then made it more weirdly French in some way, but he was not a dancer, I was wrong. He is the child of a banker and is Armenian, and or Armenian American, certainly. All these things are fine. He did study painting and sculpture, so absolutely nothing to do with anything. Him and his brother ran a rug and furnishing business in New York. All of these things. So he had like six careers. How and did then he break into the motion picture industry? Well, it says that they he decided upon a stage career. Right. That was literally it. And then attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, graduating in 1904 with a gold medal for dramatic ability. So born... 1884 and had a medal of dramatic ability at 1904 so what right. 20 years old 20, is that yeah, 20 yeah. yeah possibly 19 depending on you know when his birthday was and etc yeah but then we get this amazing thing and this is all coming from oh of course uh, yes of course it's an aries by 1910 he had assumed the stage name arthur carew and earned attention in newspapers nationally for a suspected fake suicide attempt over the actress-slash-dancer Nance Gwynn. Wow. Relocated to Chicago, debut role in A Romance in 1918, and then, yeah, 1925 was in this. Wow. That told you, didn't it? Yeah. So not a dancer, just an exceptional... Creature. Yeah, well, I mean, he's doing he's doing great work here. I say, not given much to work with because he spends most of the first half of the film just sort of looking a bit shifty, 
but he's it's properly in it at this point, you know, because um, yeah. they, they apologies. He's a Taurus, so just working oh. hard, working hard to get the job done. Working hard. Well, I can understand that. Yes. So yeah, so him and young Raúl are both fall into the trap, fall into the clutches of the phantom. They do. Typical room of many mirrors that used to be the torture chamber. So in yeah, the very beginning... of course, this place has a torture chamber too, yeah. Well, no, in the very beginning we're told that the whole theatre is built on top of a torture chamber. Which is convenient, isn't it? Which <laughs> is convenient, but also implies a reason for there to be dungeons and tunnels and a lake under the stage yeah that's stuff. what they have done at least that lip service to the yeah the, you know to setting that up the old Chekhov's gun thing yes exactly so they go into the room of many mirrors which again is only a trope now mm. <laughs> you know but it's the idea that you'd have to see yourself get tortured from many angles is this kink who knows <laughs> the tiger doorbell's a nice touch though. oh lovely i feel like it is a very camp um high high camp and then I said, did we just witness the birth of a trope? The pole to breathe underwater. That's such a wonderful sequence, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it? Where, um, it's and the phantom sliding into the black water with a tiny, very elegant little straw. Yes. And bombing about. Now, I know I have it in the very back of my brain. They use that in World War One. I mean, yeah, the idea of breathing through a reed probably predates this. Yes. However, narrative cinema is a decade old. Or certainly the feature film is a decade old yeah, by 1925. So if it's not the first if it's not the first time it's appeared on film, it's got to be nearly that just by reason of chronology. <laughs> I also love we get this so we're we're now trapped in a chamber, right? Mm-hmm. It is eyeliner man and terrible love interest. Yep. Trapped together in a kind of beautiful homoerotic strip scene, if you're going to read it one way. Very pink Narcissus, by the way. With hideous red light, to as in red filter Tinting, on it, yeah, yeah. to show intolerable heat. Yes, and it's done quite well. It is amazing, actually. It's the one time Raoul bothers to act, and it's really quite <laughs> nice. Unless maybe they just put him in a heat chamber, maybe because maybe. it is the 20s. <laughs> they just stuck him in an industrial oven, and they're like, do, do this. Yeah, yeah. But... Christine is on this side of the, or our side of the door, and is forced to watch. Oh yeah, she has to watch as her lover cooks. And the Phantom spurned. He's really capable of nastiness. You feel, you know, like we we have just been told that he's escaped from the Devil's Island for the criminally insane. We have, but also that title at the beginning mentioned that it corrupts people. The longer you spend in that environment, the longer you spend with the energies of the tortured dead of course the more it corrupts you so he's he was actually fine eric was fine i'm sure that criminally insane and escapee was a totally nice guy until he spent time hanging around like ghost tortured yeah yeah all of that all those bad vibes in the walls (laughs) oh yes oh hey i forgot Mm. good lord that 20s high-waisted cummerbund thing with the shaped woolen trousers and a broad-shouldered white shirt really do it for me. I'm doing it for you. That really yeah. does it for me every time. It's it's luckily it's not a problem I come across too often, but it's certainly a look. <laughs> scorpion or cricket buttons. This is a fascinating oh, addition, yes. isn't it? Mm. If you touch the scorpion, one thing. If you touch the the cricket, another thing. Now, is this something that we're missing in visual tropes? I don't know. I've never come across it before. It does seem a weird thing for him to have made. Um <laughs> <laughs> just sat like I mean, I'm not playing with my organ I'm whittling a cricket Yeah, well, what are you talking about he had time on his hands. I know I'm going to need this scorpion button one day 
No, I don't know. I wondered about, you know, because obviously Scorpion famously touch it, it's bad for you. Okay. You know, they sting. Cricket famously but... plays your conscience when you're a wooden boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got it. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. No, other than that, it's a bit theatrical, isn't it? You know. It's just the most goth thing ever, and I feel like I know multiple people that would have those as the handles on their cupboards. <laughs> but there we go, she picks the one that saves her partner, I think, and kills loads of other people because she's an idiot. Well, it's a horrible choice, it's a horrible position to be put in. You know, she mm. is again being sort of assailed and assaulted by. I just think they're both so unlikable. Phantom all the way. Phantom and his criminal insanity is still more interesting than her and her cactus-armed well, fear no, of touching right. of a cricket. No, you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, again, that's, that's why we're talking about this, isn't yes. it? Yes. I then put, is that a practical effect because she picks to save her partner or to cool down her partner, if you like, and the room that him and Eyeliner Man are in floods so quickly, it's actually frightening. Oh, yes. I think oh, they're yeah. really in Because it's full of, that's it, it's full of dynamite. It's full of yes. um, uh, gunpowder and Yes, gunpowder everywhere. Again, deeper than death. So, uh, you know, so it's going to blow up yeah. everything unless you submit to being my bride. And he's yes. not worried about the, like, the church formalities of the marriage. He just wants the wedding night bit. Yeah, he definitely means my bride as in my breed as in my coupling yes. rather than my bride as in... We're going to have a lovely ceremony and I'm going to play the organ and all of your family will be there and I'll bring some buddies over from the old criminal insane island. None of that. I mean, cut out the middleman and have it on the island. It'll be dirt cheap. Yeah. Catering is... I don't know if there's a church on the devil's island for the criminally insane. <laughs> Well, maybe um, there should be. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but yes. Yeah, so so, okay, we cool them down. It was like <laughs> trick. I yes. tricked you. Tra la la. Here's what I mean. I meant drowning them in front of you. Vast amount of water, and you're right. Like the room fills up very, very quickly. It doesn't appear to be undercranked. Like no, because I really think that is. I think they just flooded a room with some actors in it. Yeah. I don't um, think they used real gunpowder. Some of the red parts in the sort of when they're climbing out and when they're drowning, they're essentially about to drown. They're red lit and they're red filtered and they really look like a layer of hell. Or weirdly, like the bit from the 2000s, The Ring, where they show all the people swimming in the water from above and it looks like a scene from hell. Oh, yeah. It's a really similar vibe. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Wild carriage ride now while a mad monster steals a stagecoach or a barouche and kidnaps a lady. (laughs) Yes, because while all this has been going on, we've been cutting back and forward to a an angry mob, really. Mob yes. with pitchforks. Because one of the stagehands has figured out where they've gone. Yeah. And this mob is advancing upon the Phantom's lair. I really enjoyed the bit where she says, you know, please save them. I'll I'll, I'll be your bride or whatever. Just just don't let them drown. And he opens up a door under the rug in the middle of the floor. Yeah. And the, You know, which was all... It's, it's again. It's theatrical. It was all leading to this point, yes. but then they have to skedaddle out of there because they're being pursued by a mob with torches. And then, yeah, we have the high-speed chase. I then mentioned that is a huge amount of cast members for something like this. Yeah, that's a lot of people to navigate when you can't film and refilm things like that. Yeah. Must have been choreographed to a T. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it's this is another bit where the resources of Universal Film Studios mm. is showing. Mm-hmm. You know, they could they could do big crowd scenes and they could do them well because they had the space and they had the budget. Yes, this is the Paris Steps, 
you know, the really beautiful... Well, it looks like it's on the Seine, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what's it through Paris? Yes. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. I want to reference a film that I forgot to mention to you, that I'm sure, again, we will cover one day. It's an animated film called A Monster in Paris that is the Phantom of the Opera story, but it's right. a giant flea <laughs> who plays guitar. That sounds great. It's wonderful. Oh, yes. sign me it's up It's really, that. really wonderful. It's very strange, and it has music by a famous person's child. Who is it? <laughs> it is... Is, I believe it's Sean Lennon? Ah. Would that make sense? Is I, that a famous person's well, child? Well, John, John Lennon's pretty famous. Yeah, that was my thought. It is great and terrible at the same time. In equal measure, it is a very small animation company, I believe, that we're a part of it. So it's uh, it's quite fascinating. But we'll talk about it, it another time. Mm, the theatre of this time. whole bit. So we have the steps that are very much a Francis Ford Coppola moment oh, yeah. as well. Lots of references to this. Lots of references to Nosferatu. They bloody love steps. Lots yeah. of references to horror in general. I also think the the Victorian horror trope of a sweeping dark staircase into water is very much there. Yeah. Um, obviously steps into hell as well, blah, blah, blah. And now a drowning in the Seine. And Finney. Yeah, yeah, it is very abrupt. This is the thing that happens in early cinema, it seems. Yes, for sure. But I understand that they had at least scripted another ending really where he dies of a broken heart at his organ um i absolutely love that why didn't they go for that that's the most goth thing ever i know but i think they thought it wasn't dramatic enough i suppose here you know because we've got well they needed the devil dead they needed the devil dead you're right you're right and there's something even you know it is very brutal they just chuck his body into the water and Mm. sort of all go home i suppose just having him expire he needs to be beaten Properly. Yes, that's what I mean. Yes, yes. yes. They need no. to see him dead. It's yes. too ambiguous if he flops over. He can't really clutch his heart and be like, well, I'm a fatal coroner. And then doing, you know, landing on like a low note on the thing so the organ just goes... Obviously, I love that. And then I want that to be the echo and that phantom noise just is all they can hear and they have to shut the theatre down because they don't know where it's coming from. I mean, that's the film I would write. But the... Yeah, the angry mob put him into the river is fine. He can go back from whence he came, which is the dirty sort of river sticks of yeah on the way to hell. Yeah, it's water again, I suppose. And yeah, anything to add? Well, the two things I wanted to talk about yes were one I did mention stage twenty eight with the opera set on it. Mm. So the, you know that we get in the very beginning when we have these long yes. wide shots of of the stage from a long way back, mm-hmm. as you say from box five as it happens which was a, was a set that was built and that existed until 2014 Ugh. when uh, they demolished the soundstage it was on for something else. I understand that the surviving bits of the Opera House set, because yeah. not all of it survived the 30s, I think, you know, but uh, because it was, you know, when they, when they made it, it was just another film, just another set, but it was the largest one at the time, or certainly one of the largest soundstages mm-hmm. at the time. And um, it was reused for dozens of things. I think it does turn up in Dracula. Yes, it is, does. Hitchcock refurbished it for Torn Curtain in the 50s. Yeah, I think so. I think. And it also had a very large turntable mm. at the base so that you could put, that the, the camera could be mounted oh, on. Oh, stunning. That went up and round. And uh, it was used for dozens of things. I was trying to find a list. It's very yeah, hard to come by. find one, Very yes. hard to come by, but I know... That it was, as I say, still standing and still in use, if, if only in use very fleetingly, but you know, certainly into the 21st century, which is extraordinary. Yeah. And then when they did knock it down, they did 
the, you know, they did knock down the building it was in, stage 28, but they did preserve what remained of the set. Mm. So it's in storage at Universal and presumably could be used again, you know, if they needed another opera house set, which is yeah. remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, it really the is. The longevity of it. But it was, it's a very well-designed thing. You would, I think it is designed to look like we're on location somewhere to add a bit of verisimilitude. Yeah. Because normally, for a, for a lot of productions, wouldn't bother to build something that big, of course. A lot of productions wouldn't have the facilities to build something that big. No. So I don't want to talk about it too much because it is like one of the famous things about it. And it was on the tour for years of the Universal Studios and, yep. you know, supposed to be haunted, etc., etc., etc. But, yeah, right. it's it's important to sort of to to, to mention it and to, to mark it up, but I'm not going to go on. <laughs> but the other thing I wanted to talk about was you said about it being a horror film. And yes. of course, 1925 or 1929, we are pre the horror film as we understand it. I sort of date that to the early 30s, yep. the Todd Browning. Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, the Wolfman, etc., yes. etc. Et and yeah, in some ways, this is a this is a melodrama. This is a romance in a lot of ways. But you you pegged it as as a real bona fide horror film. I do because Nosferatu is a horror film that predates all the ones you've mentioned. Yeah, and it's definitely a horror film. And no, fair I would enough. say actually that Phantom Carriage. Yep. is definitely a horror film, right. also around this time. These are ghost stories, and that is still horror to me. That's still a horror... In the horror, horror analogue, it still has actually the horror format of, here's a place, definitely a haunted place. Oh, wait, the danger is real. That's a horror film. Yeah, The danger enough. is real and can get you. And in all of those, the danger starts as a story and then is real and can get you. And I think even if it's not described as horror, and I totally see what you're saying, Todd Browning is a perfect example of that That bringing in, you know, that labelling, if you like, yeah. the, the actually yeah. f- doing it as a trope and as a conscious choice, almost. But I would suggest that as soon as people started putting horrifying on the posters, that's a horror film. Okay, fair enough. Does that make sense? It does make sense. This is Universal, as I say, Universal Studios, Universal Pictures, Carl Lemley Jr. And I do feel like the success of this, uh, well, I say I feel like it's fairly well documented, the yeah. success of this was the genesis for the run of those 30s features that we yeah, talked about. Yeah. And they remade Phantom of the Opera in the early 40s, I think it was 1943, with uh, Claude Rains as the Phantom. Yeah. So the legacy of this, if you'd like, is not just the Andrew Lloyd Webber pantomime business. Mm-hmm. You know, although that's the, it's it's the sort of it's almost the tragedy of it that that is what hangs over this. Yes. Like that's its that's its but most famous thing. But we can't say much because some people I know people that live for that. They love the film version. They love the. They've seen the stage version a number of times. Oh, Lord, they, yeah, they and it, it's an indestructible soundtrack. hit, you know, mm. and it'll run, it'll probably outlast both of us. Yeah. But there's something There's something else here, you know, and mm. it's it's Cheney, right, and his work and his his performance, but also his artistry, his makeup work, yes. you know. Yes. I understand he taped his nose up to, because it looks like he hasn't got a nose. Yeah, right? cool. So his nose is extremely... Tape pushed back, and the uh, tape is hidden underneath the wig. 
and beautiful face and, and the, um, terrifying yeah yeah incredible horror <laughs> yes you're right it's horrifying it was de- and it's designed as such yeah like it's and it's staged as such yes and i really enjoy the fact that they don't hold it back it's relatively early in the film when we get the face reveal and then he spends a fair amount of the film's running time out of his mask you know yes. with his horrible face on <laughs> his horrible face horrible old face right i think that was about i think that's about everything yes that's i wanted to say yeah if if you've got to the end of this and you haven't seen it and um please please do there mm. are numerous versions available out there on youtube and the stuff tube of you, there yes, are a few of them free. that are a bit scratchy but so if you're watching one you think oh this is a bit hazy you know like i'm watching it through a snowstorm find another one there are decent prints of this going around yeah. now and available yeah. and it is worth seeing it in a good print so often and for so long silent films were presented poorly because yes. they were taken off very old scratchy old prints projected at the wrong speed well you told and me he watched it the director watched it with the man that did the parades gone by oh yes the um it wasn't the director, but he was the... Oh, the video, the, sorry, the... the, camera, the yes, the, the cameraman. lead cameraman um, was... This is quite an interesting... Story. I'll put this... I've got time. I'll put this in now. Yeah, so Kevin Brown was and is, he's still around, a silent film enthusiast growing up in the 50s and 60s as a young man when mm. nobody cared about this stuff. You know, no. There was no... And um, he decided to do a photo shoot with the lead camera operator on the set as it turned out and they found out that the set was still standing on stage 28 where it was filmed yes and then that night they discovered that the phantom of the opera was playing at a local cinema so kevin brown they got in touch and said oh i've got the cameraman here so the <laughs> owner of the cinema brought out his own tinted print rather, so than, rather than this crappy one yes that was in circulation he brought out his own special one and he said yeah he said to me, even though he'd sat through a screening of it before he felt like he'd never seen it because it was such a poor condition print yeah. like so many of them were and one of the, my great joys over the last few years is I mean th- thanks in a great deal to the work of Mr Brownlow who of yeah. course isn't listening but if you are like my goodness we love you um, yeah. that, that this stuff has been saved for a new for, for yes. future generations now but imagine it's getting safe. to like when did the when did he show the cameraman this? It was in the fifties, so this is uh, some thirty years after you filmed stuff. Yeah, to be able to sit an elderly cameraman in front of it who was there at the dawn of cinema essentially, yeah. and say this is how it looked. This is how, this is how your work came together. Yeah, in the end, you know, so amazing and such a lovely thing to do for someone, even on a very tiny level. Like take the fact that the BFI and everybody that's been preserving this stuff yeah. for for years, all the geeks of the world, we love you, who are like, no, this this completely niche and ridiculous thing is worth it because it usually is to somebody. Yeah. But then you have this personal moment of being like, I think we can break in there to Studio Twenty Eight. <laughs> oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, let's they, crack they, in. They, they didn't have permission from from Universal to go in, but the door was the door wasn't locked, so they went they. <laughs> They they opened it and had a look inside and spot and noticed that the set was still there. It's an extraordinary yeah. thing. Well, you said he was working for a paper at the time, so there's not yeah. really anything that exists. But couldn't some of the photos it. were taken with natural light from outside because they couldn't turn any of the lights on. So it's yeah. just this spotlight on a, a cameraman that used to be there back in the day. And I just find that so heartwarming. 
and, and the sad. And ti- the title of the book, The Parade's Gone By, mm. is taken from when he was asking, when he was interviewing people about this silent film, silent cinema, silent mm. films, silent cinema. In the sixties, I think most of the most of the interviews were done. And he was asking about it, and he said, oh, you know, no one cares about that stuff. The parade's gone by, kid. You've missed it. It's all gone. Mm. And it was. It was swept away. But thanks to a, a f- just a very few people who yes. cared enough to to do this. And the restoration that we watched was is the work of several years, decades Absolutely. of stitching stuff together. As I say, it's, a, it's not what people would have seen in the cinema in 1929 no we we don't really we can't really know what that would look like but we also had a fragment on the blu-ray that we own there was a fragment of the surviving talkie oh yes uh element of it and obviously lon chaney is still silent (laughs) yes but this is interesting there's there is a small sequence Mm. in the version that we watched where this like strange figure comes out of the dark Oh, yes. Where his face is illuminated. Do you remember that? Well, I pointed it out to you where I was like, who's... What? Didn't know who he was. Yeah. And having watched the little fragment, mm. I can now tell you that that is the character that they inserted in the 1929 version. To speak to for Lon Chaney. Exactly. Yes. The Phantom's like little helper. He had a translator, very uh, renfield It is very Renfield, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and I believe, and don't quote me on it, um, I think it's the Harbinger... That had Jesus's head in his lap. Ah. Oh. Because he was also an old creepy man. It was another old creepy man. Yeah, it could be. But it could just be there's, a, there's a surplus of old creepy men. I haven't seen the thing is, not enough of the twenty nine sound version exists <laughs> to 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 know to know one way or the other. Shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Yes, I think that was everything. So, bit of a wild card for. My episode next, because we take it in turns to pick the film, obviously, to make each other watch. And because we have, we take it in turns hosting. But I'm just going to throw this one out there and say that in two weeks' time, there will be an episode about Rebecca from 1940, the Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock, his first movie when he went to America. Oh, amazing. If you can watch it, please watch it before the episode you've got two weeks to find it and i will find out and put on social media where you can see it but also um please look up the that mitchell and webb look sketch of (laughs) rebecca after you've watched it because it's properly brilliant yes Um, it's truly great yeah i remember yes so yes the 1940 rebecca please we are also introducing a new feature to the show if you don't mind me introducing it i don't mind at all We will be doing, just so that you get your fix weekly, and because we found that we have the room and time to do it, we will be doing little micro-episodes. I refuse to call them mini-sodes, but we will be doing little micro-episodes featuring a certain theme where we recommend, discuss, and cocktail together. (laughs) Sure. Cocktail together. Well, I don't know what to call it. It's an informal cocktail chat. And have an informal chat about films on a theme from all over the place. So from our own experience, from maybe things that we've both seen, maybe things only one of us has seen, and do a bit of a compare and contrast. But it also gives you more things to go off and look at and think about and look up. And if something tickles your fancy, by all means, watch it. If something from one of those is like, yes, oh my God, please cover this, write into us and let us know. But really, it's more of just a little sort of mini bit. (laughs) <laughs> a little micro bit to 
keep the show ticking over that doesn't yeah. require a great deal of editing from me <laughs> yes um warning as well it will not be heavily edited and it will only be about half an hour long so it's yeah. a nice one for a sort of little commute to listen to us laugh at each other's terrible opinions oh and the th- the theme for the one coming up will be masks fittingly we'll be discussing films based on or featuring masks we will indeed so join us for that you said that you would put on the social media how people could watch rebecca yes remind us what are our social media channels what an excellent idea you can go to instagram that's at haunted underscore picture underscore palace you can go to twitter at hpp pod yes you can just email us if you're that lazy and we'll give you a list of what we're talking about, but probably not. Go to Instagram, eh? Because that's yeah, why it's there. Also, do send us an email. Uh, we would love to get email. <laughs> that's hauntedpicturepalace at gmail.com. We've said it enough times. And anything else? Oh, yes. Please, please, please share us and let your friends know that you enjoy us. Uh, leave us reviews wherever you can. We are on iTunes and Spotify and everything helps to spread us to the nations. We're actually getting a little bit more multinational now, so thank hello to everybody that's not from the UK as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, we, we see that you are out there and we are delighted. Yes, it's very exciting. We hope you've told all your friends and you gather around the radio to listen to two completely underqualified but <laughs> very British people talk about everything film go on then outro right well that's us uh yes thank you so much for being with us this time and we will speak to you again very soon don't have nightmares oh bye 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 everyone bye Overseen by Kevin. Kevin. Overseen. Overseen by Craig. Kevin. Fucking hell. Ah. Krakashnakov. Krakashnakov. Overseen by. Chris Kringle. Chris Kevin. Calvin Klein. Overseen by Kevin Klein. Overseen by Kevin. The most recent. We watched the most recent photo play restoration. Overseen by Kevin Brownlow. The. Oh, hang on, I've sworn in my notes.